Welcome to TrueDemocracy.Global's podcast. Today we have two guests, Terry McMahon and John Timothy. With these two guests, we're going to talk about a system of democracy that exists within the East Bay Circle of Men. We're looking into small systems of democracy in a community like the East Bay Circle of Men, as well as large systems of democracy and systems of authority. We might get a little bit about that within the circle of men as well, East Bay Circle of Men, TrueDemocracy.Global podcast, where we are looking into different aspects and systems of democracy, the technologies that support it, as well as various systems of authority. Our hope is that through understanding and applying shared knowledge and evolving technology that we can find ways to build trust and encourage constructive collaboration, which may bring about greater freedom for humanity and a true democracy where power stems truly from the people and everyone has a voice in collaboration with their fellow humans, men and women of any background. We live in an unprecedented time in history with technologies that have never before existed that may help bring about this vision. Welcome Terry and John Timothy. I've known Terry and John Timothy, Terry McMahon and JT, we call them. From the East Bay Circle of Men, I've been a member for 30 years, as well as Terry and John Timothy. What is the East Bay Circle of Men? Well, I'll jump in there if nobody else will. Uh, this is JT, and uh, the East Bay Circle of Men is a uh, nonprofit community service fraternal organization. That's the brief description. Nice. Do you agree with I that? Terry? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I guess we could say that uh, over the 30 years, we've had um, uh, dozens of members. Uh, we're currently at 100 members. Uh, that's probably our high water mark. Uh, many men have uh, left the organization because they've moved out of the area, but it's actually quite interesting now in that we have a lot of uh, members who are remote because we, they can zoom into meetings, thanks to JT, actually. Yeah, something that the pandemic brought about was the Zoom meetings and connecting with men from, that have moved out. So how did this get started? Terry, take a shot at that. So um, a number of men in the Bay Area, so we're located in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, um, attended a workshop, a weekend workshop. Uh, when I did it, it was called Men's Sex and Power. It was through the Sterling Institute of Relationship. Um, we, um, we were given the opportunity at the end of the weekend workshop to form men's groups. And um, many men took advantage of that opportunity and uh, worked together as men's groups to basically support each other to be better men. And the uh, relationship with Sterling eventually floundered and the East Bay Circle of Men was born from men who had previously done the Sterling workshop and had been involved in men's groups, but no longer wanted to associate themselves with the Sterling Institute of Relationship. And that was, um, uh, Epcom is actually East Bay Nation of Men at the time was formed in, I think, late 1991. Yep. I'll just add that uh, when 
Terry says men's groups. We actually call them teams because we found that men like to be on teams together. And uh, the teams are usually five, six, seven, eight men who meet mostly weekly. And the East Bay Circle of Men is a collection of those teams and also some men who are not associated with the team presently. Okay. And then back to the, the split with Sterling. What was the structure of the Sterling Institute? This was actually before my days. I came aboard on the East Bay Nation of Men at the time, right? About a year after that split. What was the structure of the Sterling Institute it, with, with the men's teams? How did that structure look? Well, there it was top down. And that is to say that Justin Sterling, who ran the workshop and ran the Institute, uh, set up something called the, the community, uh, the Sterling community, and all the teams that were formed out of those workshops were part of that community. There was also a women's section, too, because he ran workshops for women, very similar to the men's workshops. And that those men's and women's teams together formed the Sterling community. Uh, it was a very top-down uh, organization so that Sterling, for example, had the uh, power to take people off teams, to form new teams, to break up, break up teams, to add people to teams. Uh, and so that was one of the things that I think got uh, some of the teams to the place where they wanted to leave the community. The other thing was that um, the the real, uh, not exactly hidden agenda, but the, the subtext was that the main purpose of that community was recruiting uh, new members into to take the uh, new people to take the workshops. And that was a pretty strong um, message from the from the top and um, you know, a lot of the teams felt that that was a little bit heavy handed as well. Is that okay. correct, Terry? What do you think? I, I totally agree. And actually to point out to the East Bay Nation of Men uh, followed the lead of the South Bay Nation of Men. The, the, it was similar in the South Bay area that a number of men's groups and then men's teams were formed as a result of them attending the Sterling workshop. They also um, had a similar structure in the South Bay, uh, very top-down uh, Sterling, um, trying to control their activities. And uh, men basically got tired of it and decided to leave and form the South Bay Nation of Men. And we kind of followed their example because we were experiencing the same type of um, uh, basically not a not aligning with the, uh, the vision of Sterling at that point. Okay. And just to, to clarify, uh, we're talking to the East Bay Circle of Men, but you're talking about the East Bay Nation of Men. Yeah. So the East Bay Nation of Men decided to change their name to the East Bay Circle of Men a few years back. And it's, it's interesting, the South Bay Nation of Men actually changed their name a few years before that. Yeah. Same, same organization, just different name. Different name. And it was their, the name word. Is, their name is Momentum. Momentum. And it was the word nation, right? That was kind of throwing people off. Yeah. 
we some people were put off by that. Uh, it's got associations with. Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the word nation, but it does have in the current political climate some some negative associations with um, far right and even you know, one would say maybe a somewhat racist uh, group. So we decided to abandon that and just become a circle. There is quite a bit of difference in those two words. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And uh, membership has has uh, skyrocketed in the past few years. Was that in conjunction with changing the name or? Oh, good question. I, I just know. thought of that myself. Yeah. Well, we've, with the, uh, what's really happened is we have a, a, a very uh, assertive, aggressive, you might say a membership chief now, and we'll talk about, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about chiefs now, but, but we are, we are uh, a little bit more active in reaching out to, to, uh, men to join our organization back back to sterling so it's a top-down organization was there were there layers of structure or was it just sterling and the teams he did have uh, uh he did have an organization the Sterling institute of relationship and uh so there were people under him and sometimes directions for what you were supposed to be doing with your team came from some of the people under him but but essentially it was uh it was a one-man operation okay wow he controlled it how many how many teams and how, how many men were well this was that's i don't know the answer to that because he did these workshops all over the country mm -hmm. so there were there were sterling groups you know back east and uh in the midwest all over the place so hard to say it's hard to imagine one guy one man controlling all of that it it, it is actually a, a pretty amazing structure that he developed and um literally thousands of people went through his workshop and here in the bay area there was hundreds of of men and women who went through his workshop and wound up on uh teams so he his it was interesting uh so i took the uh the Sterling weekend in 1983 and um, we formed a men's group and I was um, correct in calling them men's groups because that was the delineation at the time. It was only after about three years or so. So in the 1986-87 timeframe that Sterling reached out to the groups, men and women's groups and told us that you're no longer groups. You are now going to be teams and at the time I was like, what's the difference? I don't get it. And, uh, and it actually is a huge difference. Uh, if, you, if you can embrace the, the difference of being on a, uh, in a group or on a team. And, uh, and we were also uh, asked to name our team. So for a number of years, I was on a men's group that was just a Sterling men's group. And we had no name. And once we were asked to become a team and uh, delineate ourselves, we selected a team name. And then after a year or so, uh, Sterling recognized the value in teams collaborating in larger groups and they formed divisions. And divisions typically were, it's, it's interesting, I hadn't really thought about this, but there was probably a, uh, 
a numbers scheme associated with uh, how many teams would make up a division. And if I had to guess, I, I'd say the, uh, the number was around 50. Once you uh, grew beyond 50, then there was the opportunity to form a new division. Uh, so in the East Bay, there were multiple teams that made up divisions and um, there were multiple divisions in the Bay Area also. And it may be that the women's groups were not called teams. They may have been called circles. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We didn't know much about the women. <laughs> <laughs> you were kept separate. Not, not entirely. We did have some wonderful uh, joint meetings uh, for a short time. I, I got in it in 1986. And we did have some wonderful meetings of uh, the men's division and the, the geographically related uh, women's division. And those are those were quite fun. Yes. How, how did those come to be? Well, Sterling made them happen. Sterling made them happen. Where, yeah. Was there leadership in the divisions? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they selected, uh, it's interesting, they selected probably a, a, a leader of the division and, and probably a, a second. And um, actually for the division I was in, I don't remember the name of the division. They, they named the divisions also. A uh, man on my team, Henry Block was his name, was the leader of our division. I think we were called the Spurs, actually. So I remember buying, buying a set of Spurs. <laughs> it was because that was, uh, that was the expectation if you were part of the division. To buy Spurs? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, were the divisions, uh, was there another layer of authority? Besides the divisions or the divisions? I, I don't I don't know. Um, I wasn't that involved in this. So so actually a step back. So Sterling was the leader of his institute. Mm -hmm. and have some paid staff, but very few paid staff. It was actually uh, uh, primarily uh, a lot of volunteer support. And back in the day, my team or actually initially my men's group, all of us volunteered at the Sterling Institute because we believe so much in the power of the, the weekend that we voluntarily gave our time to support others going to the weekend through various means. Uh, some of it was um, recruitment, getting people to do the weekend. Some of it was administrative, volunteering to do administrative activities in the Institute. Some of it was volunteering to actually um, work at the uh, production of the weekends. So there's various opportunities to volunteer and a lot of people volunteered a lot of time to support the success of the Sterling uh, Institute. So similarly, the, uh, the leader of our division, Henry Block, the expect, it, it was a volunteer position. So he would meet uh, occasionally at the Institute with Justin or the leadership at the Institute to um, report in on the health of his division and also get instructions as to, you know, how to um, be a more successful uh, division leader. So he, he reported directly to Justin. Well, probably not actually, probably to, uh, you know, Justin had a couple of key people uh, that were staff paid staff mm -hmm. organization that, 
we're helping to run things, yeah. It's interesting, as a side note, I had a member of our team for a number of years who was volunteering full-time for, for multiple years at the Sterling Institute with the hopes of becoming a paid staff, yeah. um, figuring that, uh, you know, showing how much he was dedicated to the success of the organization and uh, was never able to achieve uh, a paid position uh -huh. at the Institute, yeah. So what, what happened at the weekend? What was the result of the weekend to make all these people want to volunteer their time? Well, it was a powerful experience. And as you can probably have gleaned by now, Justin Sterling was one of these charismatic figures, um, a great showman and uh, you know, a, great, a great leader of events and uh, brilliant in many respects. And the, basically the purpose of these weekends for the people that came to them was you know, to, to become the man that you always wanted to be. And there were some very, this was, a, this was 200 men in a room for th uh, three days. And it got pretty intense. And it was, and, uh, and there were a lot of processes, a lot of interaction between Justin and individual members, um, and then breaking off into groups and, and doing some processes. But, the, but it was a profoundly moving and transforming experience. So that was the that was the weekend, and that's the power of that experience was what got people to sign up to be in the division and got people to volunteer and so forth. Yeah, I, I agree with everything JT said. It was a transformational weekend. I I, um, I was uh, working with a I actually had a coworker I was carpooling with, and he did the weekend. And um, talked about it on our carpooling trips, and I could see a change in him. And uh, he suggested that I do the weekend, and I was like, "Well, you know, thanks, but no thanks." And um, I could I could see that you know this really had an impact on his life. And the more I got to know him and could see the changes, the more interested I got. So I wound up doing the weekend, um, not really even having a, uh, a great idea in mind as to, you know, what changes I wanted to make in my life. But uh, during the weekend, I could see men's men being transformed, being, having, having the courage and the, uh, uh, the wisdom to make changes in their lives. And uh, I came out of the weekend uh, a different man and um, that changed my life. I, it's, you know, one of the best things I've ever done for myself. Yeah. Wow, still still to this date, one of the best things you've done for yourself. Yep. Yeah, I would you, say the same. I would yeah. say the same thing. And you know, um I would say that it's like it's like one of those things where, you know, take what you like and leave the rest. So there yeah. is so Justin Sterling, you you know, was also making a ton of money doing this. And um and so he's an, he's one of these interesting charismatic figures that has both a light and a dark side, I would say. But uh, 
uh, and for example, some of the some of the information that you got about relationships with women, I've come to believe is not accurate or helpful. But the strong thing that you got going in as a man is you got much better, much better relationships with other men, and and also for most of the men, much better relationships with your immediate family, your brothers, and particularly your father. And that was, um, and the intensity of that weekend was part of the reason that you actually got that. Nice. So very uh, important things that thousands of people get from, from this experience. And uh, I'm going into kind of the details about this because I recognize this you're talking about the structure and the top down is a, a system of authority as opposed to a system of democracy. I'm wondering if there was something that might have been different within the Sterling Institute that would have kept the teams and the men that departed as a part of that. Well, that was certainly uh, my experience and the experience of, of my team. We, uh, we, I was, I was, uh, I went to the weekend in 1986. So by that time, part of the weekend was you got together with eight or 10 guys who were geographically close to you and you made a team and you named yourself. Um, and that team went on for five years. It was a great experience, uh, really strong team, eventually disbanded because of people, mostly because of people moving away. But, our, our team did a couple of really great events, communities, one community service, and we did a wonderful uh, celebration for the women's uh, graduation from their weekend a few months after ours. And that was, that was a lot of fun. But after about a year of dealing with the Sterling Institute, we just got tired of being told what to do. And Part of what Sterling said is there comes a time when uh, a young man has to break with his father. And so <laughs> uh, and so we as a team got to that place with the Sterling Institute of Relationship uh, pretty fast. And within a, within a year, we were gone from the uh, the the Sterling community. But we we kept on meeting uh, for another five years just on our own. Oh, OK, without. Without, without any without any knowledge or support or contact, very much contact. I mean, we knew some of the other guys, and mm -hmm. we would have individual contact, but no formal contact with the with the institute or the community or the soon to be nation of men. Right, because that didn't start for five years after I took the weekend. Was there any room for democracy in the Sterling Institute? You know, there wasn't, and. And in some ways, um, I think the, the, the power of that weekend um, kind of depended on there being this charismatic figure at the top who was running everything. Now, in terms of the Sterling community, which, um, which developed and was not, a, was not a requirement, but most of the teams decided that they wanted to be part of that after they completed their weekends, um, we, uh, there was, there was, 
I think if I think if that had been more democratic, it would have uh, it could have still served the purposes of Justin Sterling and better served the purposes of the members of those communities. Yeah, I never really thought about it as far as a democracy or an authority authoritative organization. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, the organization did very well, in my opinion, was community service. And I, I believe there were, um, you know, it wasn't just Justin deciding what to do, where and how. I think he had uh, a lot of people um, supporting his organization in the realm of community service that were coming up with ideas, helping to lead projects. So in that sense, it was um, him giving away some of his authority and allowing others to kind of run with the ball under his, you know, name and uh, oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it wasn't by, you know, he just basically dictated uh, everything. But um, that's that's really when it came to a head for us is when they decided that uh, men's teams, they were going to... Um, decide who who was on which teams. And uh, so we were involved in Sterling uh, and within a division until just, you know, 1991 when basically Justin and his um, right-hand man, Peter, uh, basically said, you will, you know, if you're going to be affiliated with us, you will do these things. And uh, we decided that we didn't want to do that. And so we split off. I think it's I think it's important to draw a distinction between the institute, the purpose of which was to run the weekends, and the Sterling community, which was, um, as I said, something that people vol- could voluntarily join, and that was the idea was that was going to be an on- ongoing community with separate men and women's divisions, um, so. I would say that probably in the Institute and running the weekend, there wasn't any room for democracy. I think there was some room for democracy in the Sterling community. And, and, and Justin made the decision not to have that happen. Not to have the, (laughs) not to have any real democracy. He, he made the decision that, that he was going to, he was going to basically control what was going on, uh, uh, in the communities. Okay. Know, as Terry said, there was a little bit of flexibility about where you wanted to do a community service project and so forth. But in terms of the organizational structure and the power structure, which is what we're talking about, ultimately, Justin kept himself at the top of the power structure of the communities as well as the Institute. So perhaps if, if he didn't do that and allow democracy to thrive in the community, it might have been different. It would certainly have been different. And one of the ways it might have been different is he might have had fewer people signing up for his workshops. And I think that that was uh, really his motivation in that regard. Okay. So if he allowed the democracy, we're we're just supposing here, uh, not stating facts, but perhaps if he allowed the democracy to thrive in the communities, there would have been less signing up for the workshops, less recruitment. That's that. I think that would have happened because people were kind of uh, ticked off at having to meet recruitment quotas. And I think that that was probably what was 
behind the reorganization in 1991 was that uh, Justin thought he could get, if he switched things around and put different people in different teams uh, and boss people around a little bit more, that he could get more people into the workshops. That's just, but that's just my speculation. Right, right. We're just supposing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, this whole, I'm not sure if he could have ever envisioned when he started um, the, doing the weekends, uh, how many people would be involved and want to be involved voluntarily with his organization. So it grew. So I, I remember actually one of the initial things I did in volunteering at the Institute was to be in contact with the men's groups that formed from the weekend. I think he he was surprised how many men took advantage of the opportunity to form men's groups out of the weekend. It, it, when I did the weekend, it was kind of like an afterthought. You know, hey, if if you want to, you know, keep in contact with some of the men that you did the weekend with, we'll give you their names and the, of the men who live near you. And if mm -hmm. you want to form a men's group, you can do that. And initially, there was really no contact with the institute and the <laughs> And okay. Only when some of these men's groups kept meeting and they realized that, hey, wow, we've got some, you know, some little sterling groups that have formed. It might be good for us to keep in contact with them, see how they're doing, see what they're accomplishing, see how we can better utilize them to get more people to do the, the weekends. Nice. So um, I think there, I think he uh, he realized you know, hey, we're growing the organization and uh, and it's thriving. We're doing great community service stuff. Um, people are, are loving this. He started doing uh, couples weekends. Uh, so I, I think he realized that, hey, this is a wonderful thing. But then he realized that, hey, this is this is kind of getting big and um, we're I'm losing control. These people are starting to do things on their own. It's, it's actually interesting I read recently a, a multiple page article by a man from the South Bay who talked about the history of why they left the Sterling Institute. And one of the things in the article was uh, a men's group that was formed immediately following one of the Sterling weekends came out of the weekend just totally energized and they decided, hey, we wanna do this great community service project. And so they did it and they, didn't do it under the auspices of Justin Sterling. And they were uh, partially uh, criticized mm. for something on their own uh, without the authority and the approval of the Sterling Institute. And that kind of really put a bad taste in them. It's like, hey, you, you, you trained us to, uh, to be the men we want to be, and this is us being the men we want to be. <laughs> No, no, no. You can only be the men you want to be. And, and I can understand it. I mean, they, they were probably doing under the auspices of Sterling. Right. But they really, uh, and there was no formal, you know, hey, if you want to do this, you need to fill out this form and follow this process. There was, you know, none of that. But I think that's what Justin started realizing. It's like, hey, you know, we've created these great tools and and it supports them and how can it better support my organization? And once um, he started meeting some resistance, uh, he started to clamp down on, hey, no, if you wanna be affiliated with my organization, you're gonna do it this way. And there was many men who decided they, they didn't want a part of that anymore. So it's interesting to kind of get a sense of the evolution of the process and maybe if it continue, continues to evolve, it 
it could work out a little bit better. But that's not what happened in our case. 1991, <laughs> East Bay Nation men, now East Bay Circle of Men, broke off and formed our own group. I mean, I'm saying our, but I wasn't there at the time. I came along a year later. We'll let you in, too. Definitely. And what's the structure of the East Bay Circle of Men? Or let's talk about Nation Men because we're, we want to kind of get the evolution here. Sure. Uh, you know, from my perspective, the structure is pretty much the same. We have no charismatic leader. Uh, the organization is led by a group of men, uh, formerly called the chiefs. Now we call them the, the leaders circle. And um, those positions have changed over the years, but it's, tip it's typically a uh, someone in charge of membership, someone in charge of spirit, finance, events, and community service and, and those and legacy and legacy yeah yeah and those positions have changed over the years and actually the the titles have changed uh there was there's a while a while i i became a, a a chief back in the day and when i joined the chief's team there was no clear delineation of who was doing what <laughs> <laughs> it's just that you were uh on the chief's team and helped to ensure that the voices of men were heard and, and the organization was doing things to support the, the health of the teams and the health of the organization. The important part here is that, uh, as I'm sure you've noticed, is that this is not, we don't have one man at the top, and that's by design. We have a group of men. Uh, each of those men is selected by consensus of the whole large group. And uh, they have the, the Leaders Council actually a few years ago uh, decided they wanted to have a, what would they call then a head chief. Uh, but that is very basically typically just a, uh, a bureaucratic uh, device so that if somebody wants to get in touch with the organization, or has a, that kind of an outside, outsider question, uh, they, can, they have one of those men on the leaders team. They know who, which one to give a call to. And that man also sort of oversees just the very, the very basic, some of the scheduling, that sort of thing. But he is not the, uh, he's not in a sense, the, uh, the leader of the organization. And we are led by a group of men, which was, I think, our, one of our most brilliant moves. I agree. And it's nonprofit. There's no paid positions. Mm -hmm. It's all volunteer. And that's, that's a huge difference. Um, the Sterling Institute was a for-profit organization. So at the end of the day, people were volunteering their time or doing work to support the financial benefit of the organization. And we have none of that in the East Bay Circle of Men. Yeah. So these, um, these leaders run everything? In the circle, when they, they try to, <laughs> we, hey, we, hey. we have a phrase herding cats, herding cats. Okay, <laughs> so give an example of how decisions are made. Then, well, Terry is the man to talk about because Terry has a unique position in the organization. He's it's unofficial and he doesn't even have a name. <clears throat> but I call him the concierge, which means 
he's 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 present at the meetings of the leadership council. So Terry is oh. the best. Terry's the man to ask. So I I think there's there's a lot of different ways decisions are made. Some of them are spur of the moment, and a man who's inspired will say, you know what, we should do this, and uh, and men go great, let's do that. And in other cases, there's maybe changes in structure or process that the organization has done historically. And then those decisions are made when a man brings up a proposal. So a man will say, hey, we've done this this way for a number of years and I have a suggested improvement or enhancement. And so I have a proposal and that man uh, brings that proposal to the leadership council and the leadership council um, basically is there to hear, to make sure that the proposal is clearly defined and also to provide some feedback. It might be that the leadership council says, hey, you might want to consider making this tweak or mm-hmm. they may say, hey, that's, I don't think that proposal is, is um, you know, going to carry. So we're not, you can't make the proposal to the men, but we are that we're not in support of that. And the endorsement of the leadership council for any proposal is a, is a very important and positive thing. Doesn't mean that the proposal can't get accepted by the men, but if it's not endorsed by the, at least the majority of the leadership council, it's got a very low probability of passing. And the, uh, the way that the men vote is um, at a, uh, we call it fire circle meeting. So we have two main meetings a month. Uh, one is a Saturday meeting. Uh, and the other is a fire circle meeting that's primarily just for members. The Saturday meeting um, guests are allowed, male guests, and uh, proposals are voted on at the um, fire circle meeting. And they are approved with overwhelming support of the men. And there's been a, a bit of contention as to the, the men who are present versus the men who um, are in the organizations or their proctors. Uh, proctor votes. Actually, I think we have a process now where men can vote by by proxy, and uh, there's an online voting uh, that we've gone to because the uh, the Wednesday meetings quite often uh, only a percentage of the membership would show up. So there was really only a, a percentage of a percentage of the membership that were voting to approve proposals. Mm-hmm. Is there such thing as a quorum? I think the quorum is the equivalent of the overwhelming support. Yeah. So it's, I think we did define that at one point It was 75% of the, the men who were present. And now it's 75% of the membership, I believe, based on the online voting process. That's, that's to actually pass a proposal is the overwhelming support, 75%. Right. But it's just of who shows up at the meeting. So that can be like... Well, but I think, as Terry said, we now have uh, the possibility of uh, also men who are not able to attend that meeting, uh, who are members, can still vote. Uh, so we have the proposal will be voted on by the men at the Wednesday meeting, but then there's another three-day period where other men who are members can vote on it as well. Uh, this is a little. This is still a little bit in um, in flux, in my opinion. Um, because, because, um, for the longest time, 
you had to be at that Wednesday meeting to vote, period. And, uh, and so we, so due to, due to the coronavirus and, and members moving out of the geographical area, but still wanting to be part of the East Bay Circle of Men, we're, we're, uh, we've kind of loosened or changed the rules about, about voting, about quorum and, and about the, um, the necessary votes to pass a proposal. It's evolved over time. And I want to I want to I want to clarify a little bit more about decision making. So the leadership council has also if let's just say a proposal comes up and the leadership council actually has the ability to decide if that's something that they can just go ahead and approve or not or if this is something that needs the overwhelming support of the men. Um, so small things, they will, you know, small things that are just make a lot of sense and nobody's going to argue with, they can just go ahead and approve that without putting it in front of the whole membership. Um, but some things that, as Terry said, are structural or, or, or big deals or involve the expenditure of more than $300, those things have to go in front of the whole group. Is there, the, any, is there any contention on some of those small things that, that <laughs> never, never? <laughs> well, well, if there, I suppose that if there, it was, uh, and also the, there are records kept of the, the, the minutes of the, of the council leaders meetings are kept. And those are, those are available to any, any member. So if somebody says, well, wait a minute, I think that proposal needs to be put in front of the whole group then then there is a process for even if the the leaders council does not approve a proposal if you made that proposal and you feel strongly about it you can go ahead and make that proposal on your own at the wednesday night meeting and then it will be discussed and voted on at the at the subsequent wednesday night meeting the next month so the chiefs have the, uh, our team leaders I'm sorry, the Leaders' Council has quite a bit of power, but they don't have absolute power. And mm -hmm. if somebody if somebody wants to, it's I guess the, the analogy would be there's the governor of the state of California, but there's also, if you can get enough people to sign the petition, you can get an amendment, <laughs> you can get an amendment to the Constitution and everybody can vote on. Okay. That would be the metaphor. I believe the decision to change the name from the chief's council to the leader's council was made by the chief's council themselves, right? Well, it's actually, that's, that's still in flux. Yeah. So it's uh, right, right now the way it stands. So it's actually a little bit of an interesting history here of similar to the name change of the organization from the East Bay nation of men, the East Bay circle of men. There were some men who brought to the attention of the leadership of the organization that calling themselves chiefs might be um, uh, somehow uh, insensitive to a certain yeah. Native American yeah, and, ethnicity. Yeah, and there was certain men who uh, who felt it was insensitive, and uh, it was. It's actually kind of interesting when you look up the history of the title chief. It's actually an Anglo-Saxon term that was that was given to the Native Americans by Anglo-Saxons. Oh. <laughs> so that's... And, and, so go and ahead. Many military, many, many um, 
corporate and military organizations have positions that are called chiefs, the chief medical officer. Uh, so it's not, we can understand how some men think it might be an in, inappropriate term, and there's others who strongly believe that it's not. So right now, the members of the Leadership Council are calling themselves as they choose to call themselves. But, but most, most men refer to them as the leaders of the organization. There's the you know, event leader, the finance leader. Uh, the, the Lord of Legacy is one of the terms that was brought up for our legacy. <laughs> Lord, yeah. Well, that might be insensitive to certain uh, medieval yeah. groups. Uh, or or uh, British Isles uh, aristocracy. Yeah, that's right. Um, so so it, is, it, is, it, is, it is kind of interesting, actually, the, 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 this whole process of major versus minor decisions so it was, it was interesting to watch this process transform because it, it was when it was initially brought to the, the chief's council as to, you know, some men who were like, how dare you call yourselves chiefs, even though they've been doing it for 20, 25 plus years. It was like, oh, and and they took it very serious. And it was like, well, we need to make a decision on this and and come up with a change because there's a percentage of the organization that feels this is a real distraction and and are really against this. And there was other members of the organization that were like, what's the issue here? Yeah. It was it was interesting in that what they decided was we don't need to make a decision right now. Let's let's allow this to you know uh grow or fester and allow the men's voices to be heard, but there, you know, we're not, we're not going to take a stance and say, yes, we are. No, we're not. We're just going to um, see how this plays out. And that's, so I, I think it was a great decision that they made. Decision to, not to make a decision. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And the, and the name change took about two years for us to make, by the yeah. way. Correct. And Correct. So, so that's the, so that, but what you have there is an, an example of a collaborative process. So the reason it took two years is that we felt that we wanted pretty much everybody to be on board with the name change. And when we had multiple ways of trying to figure out what the new, new name could be and how to, and then how to, what, what people preferred and what the arguments were for and against. So it was uh, it was like a, a bouillon base for a couple of, that was on the pot on the stove for a couple of years, mm -hmm. and that's one of the disadvantages of democracy is it takes a lot of time. Yeah, and and if you're on a battlefield or football field, you don't or, want to right, you don't want or, to be taking all this time on what to do. <laughs> right, or or if there are if or if there's a nine eleven, or if there's a big fire exactly. in the foothills, you you have you have police chiefs and fire chiefs. Chiefs, yeah. Oh, okay. What about um? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, I'm interested in looking at the advantages and disadvantages of, of both systems, how they work together. And so far, this discussion has been really good on that. It's particularly the. the section about Justin Sterling and his top down and how, how that might have worked is supposing how it might have worked with a, a democracy as well. And what happened as a result was the Space Circle of Men and South Bay 
and there are a couple others that split off. So, so and, it's, and a, it's interesting. I, I really don't know the current status of the Sterling Institute, but I would imagine that they're still a thriving organization also and probably following mm-hmm. the same path that they were on many, many years ago. Yeah. But I don't. So what, what about um, how's, how's online voting being handled now in the circle of men? Is that grabbing hold? Is that working out? My understanding it is yeah. in that um, the proposal is clearly defined. Uh, men are, are communicated with as to you have an opportunity to cast your vote and the, the vote is, um, is counted and therefore we can determine, you know, do the majority mm-hmm. of men are in favor of this or not? Yeah. Okay. So I have a minority opinion about this, which is I don't like um, online voting and here's why. Um, and it goes back to it goes all the way back to the weekend workshop. So uh, one of the things that men do really well together is be in the same room and come to a point of view together. Mm-hmm. And being in the same room is, a, in my opinion, is an important part of that because you get a much richer flow of information. You get body language, you get eye contact, you get expressions, you get sounds from the men, you get smells from the men, you get movement and sometimes and sometimes a, uh, a fight will break out. But all <laughs> that is all that is is in the service of really looking at what is on the table and what needs to be decided. Um, and, and, you know, men's minds can be changed by uh, one man standing up and being passionate. That doesn't work as well on Zoom. You know, it works to a certain extent, but, and, and it certainly doesn't work by you reading about it in a summary that was written by the communications chief about what the, dis- what the discussion was on this issue. So, um, so I was against I was against having decisions made by men who were uh, not physically present for the discussion of the issue at hand for those reasons. Yeah, it, it might be good to define that. So so the process typically is a man will come up with an idea uh, that idea is an enhancement to the organization. He'll bring it to the leadership council saying, hey, here's, here's my proposal. Leadership council, through their discussions, will, will guide the man as to you might want to make this tweak or you might want to um, totally you know, rethink it. Or it's good as is, and uh, we'll put it on the agenda and put it before the men. Uh, the proposal typically is read at a, at a Wednesday night meeting, and then a month later, that proposal is discussed and then voted on. And so it does allow for opportunities for men to um, kind of cogitate on uh, the impacts of the proposal if, if approved and to uh, maybe talk to that man who came up with the proposal. And then at that uh, second Wednesday meeting to discuss in detail 
um, you know, what the intended result is, what the merits are, what the downsides are. And as JT mentioned, it is, it can be a very rich discussion. And I've gone into those Wednesday meetings sometimes with the clear belief that I'm going to vote either yes or no on a proposal. And then based on those discussions, I've changed my opinion. But it is, it's not just a, hey, here's a proposal, vote yes or no. There, there is an opportunity for a rich discussion because you know, some of these proposals change, change the organization. And um, uh, we haven't discussed this, but we do have a, a document. Uh, it's called the living document that lists the proposals and how they uh, change things. So for instance, um, you know, a simple one is um, the, the uh, monies that are given to the team that is uh, providing a Saturday morning breakfast. So for a number of years, we just, uh, the expense was taken up by the team uh, to prepare that breakfast. Then the organization decided, hey, it's, they're you know, digging into their own pockets and feeding the organization. So we do collect dues. So why don't we uh, delineate some of those funds to that team so they can help uh, cover the cost of breakfast? The, that uh, amount recently went up. And uh, so that changes the, um, our, our process and it's documented in the living document as to the reimbursement to that team for the Saturday morning breakfast. Very simple example, but we do have a document that mm-hmm. kind of how the organization is run. And um, quite often these proposals uh, wind up um, making modifications to that living document. The other thing to note too, is that, um, that we have a monthly newsletter that comes out uh, week or two subsequent to the Wednesday meeting and the proposal must be in that newsletter and it also must go out. We have a, uh, a news group, uh, email news group and the proposal must go out to that. And the, and the man who made the proposal, you know, also is expected to you know, let us know why he made the proposal and what he hopes it will do and how he hopes it will do that. So there is, there is quite a bit of information. And when you have a proposal like changing the name, this process goes back and forth and back and forth and on and on. Um, so most of the proposals are not that complicated, complicated or momentous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's um back up back to your point jt of being in person to hear the richness of the discussion there's this multi-dimensional array of communication when you're in person as opposed to a flat kind of single dimensional communication when you're reading or writing or even discussing in chat or some sort of email or text format yeah that you're talking about that misses out on a lot of the richness of of the proposal and the discussion. I'm curious if there's a something that might be missed in person in the presence of this multidimensional array of communication that gets noticed in the text or written format. Like for example, I'm kind of shy. And if there's a lot of energy and heated discussion, I tend not to speak up. 
Well, that's an interesting point. Um, in the current structure, um, uh, Terry, you know, help me cl clarify this for me. So it, it, the current structure is when it comes time for a proposal to come up for a vote, the men at the Wednesday meeting vote on it, but then also men who are not present have about three days to vote on that. Uh, I, electronic. I believe that's, yeah, I believe that's correct. So, um, and I suppose that during those three days, a man who was at the Wednesday circle could change his vote. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think that's ever happened, but I suppose it could happen. So um, I guess my, my response to that is, um, you know, one of the things that we, I think, just, just my opinion, one of the things that I think we are about, that, we're, that one of our intentions is to uh, encourage men and support men to speak up when it is time to speak up. And, um, and I think we've had, we've, we've actually had some really good success at that over the years. And so I think, um, I think there's more that we could do about that. We could always ask now, is there anybody else that has an opinion or thought that they, that they'd like to contribute to this discussion? But at some point it's, um, it's kind of on the individual man to speak up. And that's, and that because, because that's how it is in life. Mm -hmm. And so we are trying, one of the things we're trying to do is train one another to be better men, to be the men that we want to be and to speak up when we have a, an opinion that we think is valuable and not to hide ourselves under a barrel. <laughs> so, so making it easier for somebody who's at the Wednesday meeting to have another month to chime in uh, and talk about the discussion at the Wednesday meeting. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's got to be a limit. <laughs> okay. No, nothing personal, Jay, but I'm going to continue to encourage you to, <laughs> encourage you to speak up. Well, I, I'm trying to think of a particular instance uh, where I didn't speak up where I wanted to, and I, I can't really think of any right now. So, I don't think it's a huge issue for me. I was using me as an example, but, um, but I and, think and, right. and I do agree with you as well. Okay. I'm always looking for balance in, in any system, you know, balance between different personalities and different ways of doing things. And also with the system of, or system of authority and democracy, how, how these can work together and in conjunction. So the, the purpose of my question was actually to bring about some kind of balance or idea of a balance. You know, it, it occurs to me that there's something that we haven't spoken about, but it's in that the, the East Bay Circle of Men is made up of, I think there's like 11 teams now, and there's a, a lot of men who are members of the organization that are not on teams. Uh, but each team has their own structure also. And uh, some teams have chosen to not have a, a leader while other teams have a leader that uh, has limited power and other teams have a leader that has more power mm. uh, based 
the based on the way the team uh, decides that the team can best function. And so it is interesting that the overarching organization is made up of teams that have their own internal structures that they decide works best for them. Nice. The, the, the leaders council isn't dictating how teams run. No, that would, that would be, uh, they would get kicked out if they did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, it, Go yeah, ahead. They're not, they're not dictating how teams are run, but there, there is an understanding and, and an agreement that teams, if they're in the rotation, uh, do things to support the larger organization, uh, i.e. Uh, prepare Saturday breakfast, uh, prepare a newsletter, um, uh, lead a sacred circle. So there are responsibilities of teams in the rotation that um, they take on voluntarily. Uh, mm -hmm they join the organization as a team in the rotation. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a little conscious of time right now. It's very like over an hour. And there's one more thing I want to discuss. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions about this. Terry, you touched on it real quick and we'll see what we can do here about the living document. There's two things I want to ask about the living document. The living document, of course, is where all of the decisions are kept in a written format. And this has only been around for five or six years, correct? No, 96, I believe, is what 96? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so it's been a while. And before that, it was an, an oral, oral tradition. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think <laughs> about the difference between writing something down writing the decisions down versus passing along orally. I think it's a sign of uh, just a natural progression of, of an organization as it gets bigger, as it gets more complex, as it takes on more things. Um, you know, when you have, when we first started out, we were about 25 or 30 guys and, you know, we would always meet together and, we just sort of figure things out right at those meetings. Uh, now we've got a hundred men and, and some of them are in different parts of the country. And we've got all this technology that we didn't have back then. This was, you have to remember, we got started pretty much not exactly before computers, but very definitely before cell phones and the internet. So it's a more complicated world, but I think that's, I think that always happens in organizations that uh, you can start out, with like-minded people who pretty much understand what the game is. And then as other people come in, then more clarification is needed. And then we have to start writing things down in case disputes come up. And that's, you know, that's the nature well, of the progression. Yeah. It's, it's not just in case disputes come up. It's, it's to be, to make it clear to men what, what the organization they've they've chosen to belong to is about. So, so I, I have a, uh, a strong opinion on this uh, because it's just the way I think. And part of my role in the corporate world is to uh, develop processes to uh, support the success of the organization. Mm -hmm. So I, I was actually the the man who was a member of the chief's council at the time who brought his laptop to the chief's away who started writing this stuff down and suggested 
why don't we why don't we create a document that that actually says what we uh, what we're doing what we're about how we how we run and it was a, a product of that weekend uh, that the living document was was born mm-hmm. and there was there was men who had very strong opinions on you never want to write stuff down you want it you want this to be um, uh, an inspiration at in the spur of the moment that's what that's what serves the organization best is men who are inspired who say let's take this hill <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with the power of men who are inspired to uh, delve into leadership but i uh i do believe that part of the reason we've been around for 30 years is because we've written some stuff down (laughs) okay okay and then the other question about that is 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 it trustworthy who's writing down who's writing stuff down and is it accurate (laughs) the current the current man, our legacy, uh, our Lord of Legacy is the man responsible for ensuring that the living document is kept accurate. I think he does an amazing job. It's not a easy job. Uh, the fact that he's an attorney, I think, is very helpful. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's as, as accurate as, as, we, uh, as we hope it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually, it's probably a 10 page document now. There's a oh, yeah, it's, it's rich with details. And so any, any individual sentence you can question, is that accurate? It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So this is a document that was, as you can understand, was just added to incrementally. It's not like we made a constitution up and everything was set from the beginning. And so when you do things incrementally, uh, the, of course, the danger is that things start to contradict. Section C starts to contradict Section F and so on and so forth. Uh, and at some point, probably somebody should take a look at the whole thing with that in mind and, and trim some of that stuff down. Wouldn't hurt. Yep. Sounds like a, sounds like a proposal in the works. <laughs> oh, I've got... I've got a I've got a proposal coming up this year that the men are going to hate so much. <laughs> it's this is going to be like uh, it's it's really big, and and it's it's gonna it's gonna be another one of the name change kind of proposals. Oh boy, it's oh really boy. bad, but I got to do it. Okay, <laughs> we look forward to that and the process that follows. And uh, but uh, back to the living document, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, there's no process of of checks and balances with it. And um, no, there is. It's the, uh, the the proposal process. So the living document, in my opinion, is a tool to help define what the organization is about, but also to to document um, decisions that have been made. Mm-hmm. So up literally every every couple of months it's like hey we ought to do this it was like uh you know you really can't do that because the living document says this is the way we do it so if you want to change that then it's a proposal right right it comes up that hey this is the way we've always done things it's like no if you look at the living document here's what it says okay so that's a that's that's a process of the living document acting is a check and balance against exactly it's the tool to to basically be used by the organization to help define what decisions have been made what we've agreed to Mm -hmm. 
it, it also helps us if you want to know how to do something and you and nobody remembers how to do it it may be in the living document you know it's it's instructional right. it's instructional for things that men might want to do instructions as well as what percentage of the organization has have read the living document, JT? You got a guess on that? <laughs> <laughs> One, two, five. Anyway, uh, Terry, what I was talking about was the other way around. When things get written into the living document, if there's the checks and balances to make sure that it was written accurately. I mean, there's there's no question about the integrity of our Lord of Legacy, but sometimes things are written by mistake or not worded Correct. well. Or, yeah. Correct. I think the, uh, it's the leadership council. Yeah. It, it's mm -hmm. uh, the legacy chief who uh, modifies the living document, keeps, keeps it current. And it's up to the leadership council to ensure that the, the changes being made to the document are accurate. Mm -hmm. It is interesting uh, in thinking about it. Um, you know, one of the things I do uh, in my job is documentation. And quite often there's built in, reviews of documents just just to make sure that you know is this still accurate and existing documents we don't have that built in so that, that could be a proposal coming that's right that's right the there's future evolution there okay well i think we covered enough is there anything else any of you want to add to this discussion it was more enjoyable than i thought oh well thank you <laughs> yeah i hope we i hope we covered everything um that you wanted to no wanted it was to. great it was brilliant I, some things i would have wanted to go a little more in depth about but we covered a lot of things like the first part about the the justin sterling and the sterling institute i didn't intend to cover that in such depth but it was so fascinating to learn about particularly the contrast between authority and democracy that i really wanted to go into that so oh. it's all good Thank you, Terry and JT, for being the guest today. The True Democracy Global podcast mission is to explore topics related to democracy and systems of authority, as well as the technologies that support them. We cast a wide net to bring in information from a variety of sources, both big and small, with the intention of shedding light in every corner and illuminating a broad and deep understanding of the systems that exist past and present. With this understanding, we refine our nonprofit mission, which supports our vision to build trust, encourage constructive collaboration, and provide an avenue for the authenticity of and the secure storage of information, which is why I wanted to talk about living document a little bit more. Please visit the true democracy.global podcast for more information.